0: Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobooks, and I use it all the time for personal reading and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep, forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 82 of History of the Marine Corps the Philippine-American War. Our last episode discussed the final years of the U.S. occupation in Haiti. We covered the transfer of power from the United States back to the Haitian government, the progress of the Gendarmerie force, and we briefly touched on some of the more atrocious acts by Marines. This episode jumps into the Philippine-American War. Spain ceded the Philippines to the United States after the Spanish-American War, but Filipinos didn't want to be under the control of another colonial ruler. They wanted independence, and they started a rebellion against the U.S. presence in the Philippines. We cover a few battles and an unfortunate event where Marines lost their way in the jungle and multiple men died from hunger trying to find their way back. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The first president of the Philippines didn't want his country to be under the control of another colonial ruler. He wanted independence, and as a result, Filipinos started to rebel against the United States presence in their country. At this point in the Corps' history, Marines displayed phenomenal discipline in the Spanish-American War, and the equipment they were using was top-notch. But Marines had the same problem they faced since their inception. There weren't enough men serving. The Commandant was concerned about Marines being spread too thin. Quote, in order to organize this battalion to furnish guards for the auxiliary ships and to make the increases in the guards of the regular vessels requested by their commanding officers, it was necessary to very greatly deplete the strength of the shore stations of the Corps, leaving most of them in charge of non-commissioned officers, and in some instances with the strength of only six or seven men, On May 4th, Congress passed the Naval Appropriation Act that authorized the enlistment of another 473 Marines for permanent service and another 80 corporals and 1,500 privates for service during the war. The act also called for 60 gunnery sergeants, but the administration screwed up, and they never authorized appropriation for their pay. As a result, the Corps didn't enlist any gunnies. The increase of Marines warranted a promotion for the Commandant, and he was promoted to Brigadier General. The additional enlisted Marines also needed officers to lead them, so Congress passed the Naval Personnel Act, which allowed the commission of first and second lieutenants based on four categories. The first were graduates of the U.S. Naval Academy. The second were Marines who enlisted as second lieutenants during the Spanish-American War. The third were competent non-commissioned officers. And the fourth were men from civil life. 30 out of the 43 second lieutenants received commissions under these provisions. Only one would be a prior NCO. That would be Lieutenant Charles Anderson. 15 were appointed from civil life. At the beginning of 1899, the U.S. Navy began to feel pressure from Filipino insurrectionists. Commodore George Dewey was positioned at Cavite and on March 9, 1899, he requested a battalion of 250 Marines for additional defense. Colonel Percival Pope was placed in charge of this battalion and they sailed to the Philippines on May 23rd. Once he arrived, Pope immediately assigned his Marines to posts guarding the naval base. It didn't take long for the command to realize that the number of Marines sent to the Philippines wasn't enough. On May 27, 1899, Colonel Pope reported, The battalion strength at present of 282 men and 15 officers is not sufficient to be prepared for every call that might be made upon it here. At the same time, according to the present arrangements, there's no available space for any more troops in the yard and no place within the necessary distance where the man could go into camp. Joining the yard is Old Fort Felipe, which is in a very dilapidated and unsanitary condition and is uninhabitable. There is an old, small one-story wooden building in the fort enclosure, now occupied by a company of volunteers. There are no cooking, messing, or washing facilities. He goes on to say, It would take about $5,000 for the necessary repairs. The remainder of the volunteer regiment stationed here is quartered in various places throughout the town of Cavite, wherever they find a vacant place in the bungalows. These arrangements for the volunteer troops are bad in every way. They are continually changed around, so that the same troops are not kept here for any length of time. No one in this climate sleeps on the ground floor, even the poor native bungalows being raised well above the ground. When people sleep near the ground, they are continually ill with fever and soon break down, and the space thus cleared should be utilized as a site for building a small barracks. Otherwise, at the present time, every available space and living room are occupied though possibly a limited number of bungalows could be rented outside. No more troops could be taken care of until some additional arrangements are made for their being quartered. Less than two months later, Rear Admiral Watson, who recently replaced Dewey, requested another battalion of Marines. Major George Elliott would command this battalion made up of 14 officers and 350 enlisted. They arrived in the Philippines on September 21st. The total Marine force at Cavite was 30 officers and 916 Marines. By October, the number of Filipinos in the province grew significantly and the activity around the naval base increased. The U.S. Army was also present on the island and both forces conducted operations to stop the Filipino uprising. Army General Henry Lawton was placed in charge of the area and he sent a detachment seven miles southeast to get rid of any insurrectionists. The U.S. troops advanced on October 3rd. Close to 100 Marines and 24 sailors, under the command of Marine Captain Fuller, took part in this initial operation. Shortly after, another battalion of Marines, consisting of 20 officers and 360 enlisted, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Elliott, joined the fight. They attacked them head-on at Novalita. Marines received support from the USS Petrol. While the Marines were attacking Novalita, the Army attacked Cavite Viejo, while another Army detachment supported the Marines by outflanking the insurgents. U.S. forces had a hard time navigating through the countryside, and Elliott divided his Marines into two columns. Captain Haynes commanded the left column, while Captain Fuller commanded the right. Both flanks ran into Filipino defenses on the morning of October 8th. Once the Petrol received a signal from Elliott, it immediately started firing to cover the Marines' advance. Leathernecks trekked through swamplands and tidewater runs to get within one mile of their target. They encountered the usual resistance along the way, and as they neared their destination, the resistance grew. Marines relied on their marksmanship skills and were able to take out any resistance. The two flanks of Marines continued to advance towards their target. But each flank faced vastly different terrain. While one column of Marines waded through muddy rice fields, the other had to fight through thick brush. This harsh terrain caused a lot of confusion, which resulted in disorganization. When they were 250 yards from the enemy, They organized near an old, abandoned wall, which was previously used as a defense structure. The Marines regrouped and began to fire at the enemy's defensive position. They quickly found out that they weren't dealing with an inexperienced force of rebels. The Filipinos returned fire with just as much ferocity, and soon they started to outflank the Marines. A group of injured marines in the rear started taking fire, and a detachment of 20 left the front lines to help the wounded in the rear. The main offensive line for the marines continued to push back Filipino insurgents, and soon they gained some ground against the defenses. The entire Filipino defensive line soon fell, and the marines moved to their position. The army had similar success. Now that U.S. troops flanked the Filipinos, most started to flee or mixed with the locals and pretended to be friendly. This was the first real fight against the insurrectionists. The Marines had 11 wounded during this battle. One of the injured would die from his wounds. After this engagement, most U.S. troops were sent to the north of Manila. This transfer left the Cavite province relatively defenseless. Only 200 Marines remained. Admiral Watson requested another battalion of Marines to supplement the remaining forces. His request was approved, and Major Littleton Waller arrived on December 15th with his battalion of 15 officers and 325 enlisted. Up to this point, U.S. engagements with Filipinos took place in the southern part of Luzon, the largest and most populated island of the country. Towards the end of 1899, U.S. forces would make a concerted effort to eliminate any rebels on the island, and the U.S. Army headed north to accomplish this task. Army General Young pushed north along the west coast of the island and pursued a force under Aguinado. The Navy supported Young by sea, and 50 Marines, commanded by Captain Dion Williams from the USS Oregon, joined the Army on land on November 26. Their target was Vigon, and U.S. troops anticipated another vigorous attack by the Filipinos. But when they reached their destination, residents met them with more of a welcome than a confrontation. Town officials happily met with Captain Williams, and they turned over the town to him. Many locals were happy to see the Marines and welcome them as well. The Marines set up an outpost around the town to protect them from a potential attack. They also sent out patrols to search for any rebels. Back in Cavite, the U.S. Navy and the military governor of the Philippines reached an agreement to turn over the full authority of the town to the United States. Draper and 117 Marines were assigned to Ilongapo, where they had to clear the surrounding area of insurgents and robbers. This was another harsh location for the Marines. They either had to travel 30 miles to the nearest water source, or cut that distance in half by hiking through a kilometer-high mountain range. On one of their trips, Filipinos attacked the Marines and ended up killing two. The Filipinos fled to Morong, and Draper gathered most of his Marines and headed towards the town the following day. But by the time the Marines showed up, all the Filipinos were gone. Draper continued to hunt down the rebels who attacked his marines. Not finding any of them, but discovering weapons and ammunition along the way. They wouldn't meet the insurgents again until March, when 45 of Draper's marines were assigned to the U.S. Army. Once the army and marines seized the town of Cognac, Draper sent multiple patrols out to find the insurgents. It took Draper three months but he managed to control the insurgent population and restore some order. He established a local government, made sure the locals were fed, supplied medical attention to the residents, and set up a school, whose instructor was Lieutenant George C. Thorpe. Yes, the same Thorpe who Merkel called out in his suicide note. Another company of Marines was sent to Ilongapo in March 1900 to support Draper and his growing community a new marine post was established nearby at the port. Almost 1,000 marines were split up into 13 different detachments, including providing protection for five lighthouses. They remained at these outposts only for the next three months, until half of U.S. marines in the Philippines would support operations in China against the boxers, something we will discuss in next week's episode. With the lack of resources, the only natural move was to recall some of the marines from the outpost and assign them to key locations. Most of them were assigned to the two main posts at Cavite and Subic Bay, while small detachments manned the lighthouses. In charge of the Atlantic fleet, Admiral Remy continued to request additional marines to help in the Philippines. But as quickly as the Corps created battalions, they were sent to China to help with the escalating tensions. This happened to Remy twice. Well, two and a half times if you want to get technical. He was promised a battalion of Marines. They were organized at Washington and commanded by Major Biddle, but they were diverted to China. The 5th Battalion was created a month later to support U.S. efforts in the Philippines, but again they were diverted to China. The 6th Battalion was created and sent for the Philippines, but only two of its companies reached Cavite. By September, the situation in China was under control and the Secretary of the Navy ordered all Marines assigned to the expeditionary forces in China back to Cavite and they relieved the U.S. Army. In October, 1,000 Marines were sent from China to Cavite and the total strength grew to 1,678. This brigade of Marines was organized into two regiments and each regiment had two battalions. A fleet marine battalion was also assigned to U.S. vessels that had the ability to quickly deploy to most locations. The Marine Corps also established two artillery companies. Most of the 1st Regiment was assigned to Ilongapo, and the 2nd Regiment, along with the brigade headquarters, went to Cavite. Multiple other detachments were sent throughout the island. And with most of the island under marine control, the U.S. Navy established a military government, and the responsibility for each local government fell on the marine officers. The commanding officer in each of the districts would serve as a military governor. Marines also took up the role as guards for the military prisons, and the Marines carried these responsibilities for the next year. Now to the southwest of Luzon is Samar Island, while Luzon was under control, the island of Samar saw a lot of insurrection activity. On September 28, 1901, Charlie Company, of the U.S. Army's 9th Infantry, was ambushed during the Battle of Balangiga. Soldiers were in the mess hall eating dinner when Moros came in and massacred them. This surprise attack resulted in a full-out retaliation by the United States. Army General Jacob Smith ordered indiscriminate attacks on Samar Island. The U.S. Navy sent small gunboats up rivers and helped the troops ashore. A battalion of Marines, consisting of 14 officers and 300 enlisted, commanded by Major Waller, would help the Army attack Samar. They showed up on October 24th, where some of the Marines relieved the Army's 9th Infantry while the rest went to Balangiga, under the command of Captain D. Porter. This campaign was another black eye to the United States. U.S. troops destroyed food supplies, burnt villages, and civilians were tortured and killed. General Jacob Smith actually ordered Marine Major Waller, quote, I wish you to kill and burn. The more you kill and burn, the more you will please me. I want all persons killed who are capable of bearing arms and actual hostilities against the United States. The interior of Samar must be made a howling wilderness, unquote. Up to 2,500 people died during these attacks. All Marines on the island served under Brigadier General Jacob Smith. The Marines oversaw the southern end of the island. Waller and Porter sent multiple detachments of Marines throughout their area of responsibility. They would locate insurgents, eliminate them, and occasionally burn down the village. And although harsh, the plan was working. And the constant patrols by Marines caused the Moros to fall back and move towards the Sohoten River. The Moros had defenses in the river's high cliffs, some as high as 200 feet. Filipinos dug defenses into the volcanic rock and suspended boulders to drop on any ships in the river below. It took them three years to build this defense structure. The Morals thought they were indestructible. Waller took up the challenge of proving them wrong, and he sent two columns, one under Porter and the second under Captain Bears. They marched through the jungle towards the enemy. Waller had a third detachment of Marines head up the river in boats. On November 16th, the two columns on land met up, and they rested for the night. The marines and boats stopped 200 feet below their position and established communication with them. The original plan was for the marines and boats to advance along with the ones on land, but due to a misunderstanding between Waller and Porter, the marines in the boat stayed behind. Maybe it was for the best, because Porter thought the boulders hanging over the waterway would decimate the small boats. Porter and Bears left in the morning towards their target. They soon found a trail leading to the enemy's defenses. Along the trail, Marines had to deal with occasional booby traps. In one instance, Marines found several bamboo guns, one of which had a lit fuse. Corporal Harry Glenn ran to the gun and pulled the fuse before it fired. An abandoned camp was at the end of the trail, but the fires were still burning meaning that the Moros had just left. The Marines continued to advance and soon came upon two more camps. This time, the insurgents were there and they were unaware of the Marines. Porter called up the M1895 Colt Browning machine guns, positioned them towards the camp, and instantly killed 30 Moros. He led his Marines down the volcanic cliffs and slowly made their way towards the enemy's position. The Marines captured the cliffs with relative ease, something the Moros thought was impossible. This victory destroyed the morale of the rebels. It took the Marines three weeks to complete this campaign, and the past three days of scaling volcanic cliffs and navigating through booby traps were tiring. They were out of food, and many of them were barefoot. But given the circumstances, The Marines were ecstatic they took out the Moro's last line of defense. Both Bears and Porter would be awarded the Medal of Honor for their service during the Battle of the Soho and Cliffs. And although no Medal of Honor was awarded for the enlisted, Corporal Glenn received recognition for his quick reaction to the gun fuse, and Gunnery Sergeant John Quick received recognition for his decisive role laying down covering fire. Waller allowed his Marines to rest for three days before sending them out again. He sent three expeditions in November, which established a base about eight miles up the river. Marines destroyed multiple Moros camps in the process. They also destroyed munition plants along the way. Waller's next task was to establish communication he sent a reconnaissance team to search for a trail across the island so he could run a telegraph line. The Marines wouldn't come across one moro, but this task would be disastrous. On December 28, 1901, the Marines arrived at the mouth of the Lanong River. The plan was to head up the river as far as possible, hopefully find a trail, and head towards the Sohoten Cliffs. This detachment was led by Waller. With him was Captain Porter, Bears, Lieutenant Williams, Lieutenant Halford, and 50 enlisted. A few Army soldiers of the 7th Infantry, two Native scouts, and 33 Native carriers were with the Marines. This journey began on boats, and the detachment headed up the river. But they had to abandon this plan on the second day due to the strong rapids. The army took the boats back to camp while the rest pushed on. The next day, the Marines were able to find a trail, and by the end of the day, they managed to reach the mountains. But as they pushed on, the journey became more challenging. Due to the winding trails, Marines had to make multiple trips across the river, climb up near vertical ledges, and the amount of twists and turns in the trail would cause the marines to almost travel in circles. And by the end of the third day, the path they had been following came to an end. They traveled 12 miles that day, but they only made 4 miles of progress. Waller discovered that someone had been throwing away all the hard bread in their rations, significantly reducing their food supply. He reduced meals to twice a day to save what little food they had left. Men started to get weak, and by January 2nd, the rations were almost gone. The Marines found no food along the way. Fatigue started to exacerbate the situation. Waller thought the best way out of this was to head west, so he picked out Halford and 13 other Marines who were still in good shape. He sent them back to camp the next morning, in hopes that a relief party would come for the remaining Marines. Waller continued up the river with the small detachment himself, leaving Porter in charge of the rest of the Marines. The plan was for Waller to establish a trail, and Porter would follow his route. But this was an arduous task. The Marines didn't have maps, and the rain and humidity had destroyed anything they carried made of paper. Everything was so damp, even a fire couldn't be started. Food supplies started to run out, and the Marines' rations were limited to one meal of raw food per day. The following day, Waller stumbled upon a clearing where bananas, coconuts, potatoes, and other types of vegetables were growing. The garden led to a trail, and about a five-minute walk would lead him to a small village. Waller sent a messenger to Porter to tell him the good news, but when the runner returned, he only had Bears and Corporal Murphy with him. Bears had left Porter about an hour and a half prior. A second messenger was sent to Porter, but he never reached him. Waller ended up leaving a message in a tin can on a pole, but Porter would never receive it. Waller continued his journey, met a local villager who knew the trail, and escorted them back to Sahotin. Just by sheer luck, Waller ran into Dunlap, who was building a supply camp, and they all got into Dunlap's boat and headed back to base on January 6th. The next day, Waller took a new party and began to search for Porter. They traveled for nine days, but they found no trace of Porter and his detachment. Waller returned to base on January 17th, so exhausted and sick that he was immediately sent to the hospital. As for Porter, he tried to follow Waller, but he got lost. He also sent a messenger to establish communication, but the messenger couldn't reach Waller. Porter decided that his best bet was to leave his detachment and head back to camp himself for a relief party. He selected Quick, six other Marines, and six other natives to go with him. He left Williams in charge. His trip back would be even worse, and in addition to the lack of food, a torrential downpour flooded the streams making waterways impossible to cross. Porter eventually reached Lanang on January 11th and reported the situation to the Army commander. The Army immediately sent a relief detachment, but they couldn't start until three days later due to the flooded streams. Lieutenant Williams had the most difficult task in this situation. He was left in charge of the weakest Marines. He understood that without food, They all faced starvation if they stayed put. Williams slowly started to march the remaining Marines towards Porter's Trail, leaving Marines along the way to die when they couldn't continue any further. Ten Marines were left for dead before the relief party finally reached them and took them back to camp. But despite this terrible hardship, Waller's battalion wasn't done operating. They rested for a few days and continued their attacks on the Moros. The Marine Battalion would leave Samar on March 2, 1902, after being relieved by the Army. The Marine Brigade in the Philippines would see less activity from the rebels and soon settle down to a more peacetime routine. By 1906, most government responsibilities were handed over, and the Marines only served in Cavite and Olongapo. In April 1914, the Marine Brigade in the Philippines was disbanded. Major Waller was tried for ordering the execution of 11 Filipino guides who attempted a mutiny. He initially cited the Lieber Code, a Civil War general order allowing the killing of POWs if they violate the rules of war. General Smith was called up to testify against Waller, and he shoved him under the bus. In return, Waller opened up and admitted that he acted on special orders from Smith which stated that he was ordered to take no prisoners and kill every Filipino over the age of 10. His testimony was confirmed by three other officers and multiple copies of every order written to him from Smith was provided in the trial. Smith was court-martialed as well, but not for murder or any other war crime. He was tried for conduct to the prejudice of good order and military discipline. He was found guilty and forced into retirement. Smith received no other punishment for his crimes in the Philippines. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll head to China for the Boxer Rebellion. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is The Guns of August by Barbara Tuchman. Next month, we're going to start diving into World War I. Similar to every other war we discussed on this podcast, I will dig into how the Great War started, but the details that are involved in World War I cannot be summarized into a single episode. If you appreciate the specifics, I suggest reading The Guns of August. This book is one of the best sources for understanding how the First World War started. It's a phenomenal read, and the book won the Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction in 1963. If you're interested in learning more about the events leading up to the war, give this book a shot. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecore.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.